Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening, odds are you're a fan of the universe George Lucas created. I am too. I love Star Wars and have been desperate to tell my own Star Wars story. But I always wanted a story that was more focused on the struggles on the front lines and less about the machinations of the Senate. A boots on the ground story about the millions of people desperate to survive the horrors of galactic war. That is what Mud 79 is all about. If you're new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode nine, Boots. Platoon 79 concluded their raid on an enemy safe house in the town of Flaudeen. Based on the gathered intelligence, the Empire has taken an offensive posture in their operations in the Sestin Nebula, which led to the newly minted scouts of the 79th Platoon being sent on a recon mission. Is there something about this mission we're not being told? How cloak and dagger are things about to get? Will the scouts rejoin the platoon, or is this separation permanent? Let's find out! The boat chopped through the waves, up and down, up and down, rolling slightly from one side to the other. It hauled its way in a northeasterly direction, steady, every day, for the past week. We'd hit the delta just before sunrise. Eight of us would storm ashore at the peak of high tide. That was the plan. A week earlier, we were cleaning our gear when the LT came in and told us to pack our shit. The following 24 hours were insane. We boarded a civilian transport at Camp Vibus and headed for Flaudine. We were told once there we'd take on a few crates of cargo and an advisor who'd brief us on the specifics of our mission. And then we'd make for Port Heffy. Port Heffy was a decent-sized port city with around 12,000 people. Fair amount of agriculture, but a lot of fishing. That was the real backbone of the place. Boats large and small were always coming in and out. That's why command booked a ride through there. Less likely to draw attention. Also helped that it was on a small island, a few hundred clicks west of the mainland. This whole thing had a real orders from the brass vibe to it, so we shut our mouths, didn't ask any smart-ass questions, just got on the transport and did our best impression of soldiers who knew what they were doing. When we hit Flaudeen, the cargo doors opened up, and a Twi'lek came in with some crates on a dolly. She looked like a standard dock worker, moving one stack of cargo, then another, normal stuff. Only they stayed on when the door closed. Came over, strapped in right next to us, tossed a dark blue leku to the side and stared at us crooked. Nice of you to offer to help. We looked over in confusion. Why was she even speaking to us? Why was she sitting down? 
The engines flared up and the repulsor lifts kicked in with a lurch. We were going up. I'm Special Agent Fepto Mitsonic with Imperial Intelligence. I'm here to assist you on your mission. A Twi'lek working with the Empire wasn't that unusual. They'd been in bed with the Republic during the Clone Wars, and even after the Republic collapsed, most Twi'lek colonies declared fealty to the Empire. Their homeworld didn't, though, so that gave weight to the idea they were all traitors. That misconception could be used to our advantage. First and foremost, I suggest you take the next 30 minutes to move around and stretch. Because when we land at Port Heffy, I'll need all of you to load your gear and yourselves into those crates. Our... selves? Like, we're getting in those crates? Yes, Private. Then you'll be loaded onto a land speeder and transported to the docks where you will be placed on a boat, and we can begin our journey to the drop point. There were some stares around the room as we all wondered whether she was serious. But I got up and prompted the others to follow. We made a game of it, stretching and limbering up before reorganizing the containers and placing our gear inside. I stripped down to my work dress so I'd have a bit more room when I crawled into my box. I can't lie, when that lid came down, I got scared. It was bad. I was shaking. Flashbacks of what I'd seen in the warehouse. I felt sweat coming down my forehead and down my nose. I was in a ball, my hands around my legs pulled in tight. I kept whispering, it's fine, it's fine. I would lean my head back as much as I could, open my eyes. It was completely black in there. I hated it. But I saw things. Even when my eyes were closed, I could hear the Inquisitor breathing. I swear I could hear it. I relaxed my grip on my legs. I relaxed my entire body, slowed my breathing, and thought of the fields back home, the way they looked at full bloom when the suns were high in the sky, reflecting light like a field of gemstones. There was muffled talking outside, languages I didn't understand. Then quiet again, and I felt the kick of the speeder jolt forward. And then we stopped again. We were jostled around again and moved outside. I could hear the sound of the ocean, waves. There was a bit of a drop as I was lowered onto the boat's deck. For a moment, I thought I'd been dropped into the water. You always assume the worst in those situations. Then I was stacked, dollied around, placed somewhere quiet, and I waited. I was stuck in that thing for what felt like hours. It was actually just over two hours when Fepto popped the lids. Bet you're glad you stretch now. I was. We'd been placed in a cargo hold on a fishing vessel. That was where we would remain for the five-day journey across the Karth Sea to the Jane Delta, our drop-off point. We were in a hold, six meters long, four meters wide, and just over two meters tall. We would not be leaving until we got off the boat. But we had plenty to do while we waited. Fepto had given us a good dump of intel of what would be required from us. 
Once we finally made it ashore, we would have a six-day hike ahead of us to reach our designated target, Firepoint Gamma. She also had a present for us, resupply. Given the importance of our mission's success, we'd been outfitted with additional firepower. Two C-7 slug throwers, two MH-8 mortar launchers, and we'd all been issued an EC-17 blaster pistol as a sidearm. Now, the C-7 was primarily used for bringing down a heavily armored target, but it was also used in close quarters fighting, which made us ask if we'd been tasked with actually breaching the fire point and eliminating the garrison at close range. No, the slug thrower is for Gritik, Poda Apes, and Rendehu. I've told you about Gritik before. They're giant snakefish that would stalk the shores of any slow-moving body of water. As long as you didn't get too close to the water, you'd be fine. Poda apes were something else. We'd been briefed on them when we landed. Stood about two meters tall if they were erect. But they never were. They were always these one meter tall bundles of muscle and rage. Had these segmented shell-like growths on their torso and limbs. That meant you'd need to get a direct blaster hit to bring one down. Their internal organs were used in medical research, though. Pretty valuable. Hunters would apply for permits to bring down a limited supply in exchange for payment from the Empire's administrative offices on the surface. Same with Windeyu. They were massive, predatory reptiles. Glide through the air in near-perfect silence before swooping down from hundreds of meters above you and... That's it. You were done. And I want to re-emphasize, they were big. We're talking a wingspan of 15 meters plus. We were also issued IRDs, infrared dampeners. They were these suits you'd wear beneath your armor, like your standard issue fatigues, only they'd dampen your thermal imprint, so somebody using infrared wouldn't be able to get a bead on you. They didn't breathe very well, and were made of this rough material that would give you a rash within minutes. We'd wear a full compression suit underneath to keep ourselves from being rubbed raw. The only time you take these off is when you need to do your business, understand? We're dealing with a very organized enemy force, well-trained and precise. We don't know if there's probe droids patrolling those woods along with the battery positions. But I wouldn't be surprised if you encountered enemy foot patrols or scout positions. And what do we do if we encounter an enemy patrol or a scout? Avoid them and keep moving? Whatever feels best. But remember, next bender day at exactly 0430, you will assault Firepoint Gamma. It will be neutralized by exactly 0432. If you fail, more than a thousand of your fellow troopers will face a barrage of anti-aircraft fire. Do whatever needs to be done to ensure that position goes dark. Do you understand? This attack was meant to come all at once. A cascade of offensives, each one teeing off the next. A storm of firepower. We'd have exactly two minutes to guarantee the AA was offline before the assault force moved past. Fepto went over a rough series of assault patterns for us to employ. She noted how we would most likely need to improvise based on our 
tactical disposition upon reaching the target, but emphasized the importance of our mission. Repeatedly. If this is so important, why doesn't the Star Destroyer in orbit take out the batteries and then go after the shield? A bunch of orbital turbo lasers can pack more punch than we can. You're not wrong, but those batteries are cloaked. They won't show up on sensors in order for the turrets to get a precise lock. And even if we use positioning from sources on the ground, there isn't enough firepower to bring down those batteries and then guarantee the shield will be down when the lardies arrive. We were also warned that there would be zero comms chatter while we were out there. Command was convinced that whoever was running that base in the ravine was scanning constantly for any comms traffic. That meant nothing between us on local channels, and the only method of contact with the outside world we had was a tonal transmitter. When Firepoint Gamma went down, we would send out a single tone, letting Command know we succeeded. Two for failure. And to fail would more than likely mean a firing squad. Which, by Imperial law, was an acceptable punishment for soldiers who failed in the line of duty and cost the lives of others. This is what was running through my head when the engines on the boat died down. We were adrift, and that meant it was time to go. The eight of us got our gear together, each having a full load of 80 pounds, ammunition and rations split amongst us. Then we waited. The hold's door unlatched. It was Fepto. She motioned us to get out and follow her. The boat was dark. No flashlights. Nothing. Just our footsteps. Back of the boat. There's a hydrofoil. We'll take it ashore. We moved through a hallway and stepped out onto the deck. It was night. The sky was overcast, but the nebula glowed so bright you could make it out from behind the cloud cover. That dull purple hue. The coast was visible, just a black mass in the distance. The peaks a hundred or so clicks inward. If you focused, you could still make them out. The eight of us got on the hydrofoil as Fepto lowered it into the water. We pulled away. We were close to the shore when she yelled over the wind. We're too low. I'm not going to be able to get as deep as I'd hoped. I'll have to drop you off as soon as we break through the sandbars. I had studied the map. She just added a full five clicks to our walk. I know that might not seem very important, but every second mattered. And this was added time we hadn't accounted for. The foil skimmed in close to a bank and we hopped out. Once we were on the shore, Fepto held up her bracelet with the exact time we had on till the lardy fly by. Don't die, troopers. Then she pulled away and we began our journey inland. We moved into the jungle, which was still thick and green despite the dropping temperatures. It wasn't nearly as hot as it had been during that ambush a few months back. Something I appreciated, given the IRDs kept things nice and sweaty. The IRDs also had a different pattern than our normal gray fatigues, too. A basic green-on-green camouflage. Worked all right for the terrain, so none of us complained. They were also a bit more water-resistant than standard fabric, too. 
which was helpful because we were still on the fringes of the delta. It was a series of swamps, pockets of land broken by shallow streams that steadily got lower until they were just mud. Your feet would sink into your ankles. Some parts were covered by this dense green algae that didn't let you sink in, but it would lash out at you, these little green buds forming tendrils and wrapping around your feet. Carnivorous plants. Great. A good tug would normally get them off you. Mud was really the only thing weighing us down near the end of the delta. It was an exhausting march. There was no talking. We were breathing too hard. But everyone kept eyes on each other. Steady progress in a long file. Vansel was at the head and he kept us marching for five hours. No slowing down. No obstacles. Always keeping us headed south by southeast. Right to the edge of the delta. We just made it onto solid ground and moved into some denser cover when the file halted. I dropped down, slid into cover on my right. Some vines and shrubs clinging to the base of a massive fern or tree. Something green, anyways. I looked up ahead at Troka from 3rd Squad. There was no danger. She was signaling it was time to eat. We were taking a break. We needed enough food for six days. So most of what we brought with us was a dehydrated caloric supplement powder. It would give you all the vitamins and calories you would need to a day and you would achieve optimal nutrition levels for any combat duty soldier. Provided you could keep it down and handle the stomach cramps and loose stool that came along with it. I guess they were being generous because we also got some juice powder mando berry flavor, which was just an orange sugary water. There were also seven packets of instant bean coffee. What luxury. Given all the weapons, ammunition, and gear we'd need for our assignment, this was all the food we could carry. Our stomachs would suffer in the name of the Emperor. After choking down the last of my meal, I stretched and then strapped my pack back on. We marched low through the brush. At times, our trail would end or bend in a different direction than it had earlier. Mondahai was leading now, and she had the tough task of getting us through the undergrowth. That meant we'd take turns with our blades up ahead, cutting our way forward. It was exhausting, but we couldn't fall off course. I had my turn at the head near the end of the day, checking my map every few minutes, making sure we weren't off course. The bracelet's nav system was incredible and didn't need any outside signals to function, which meant even if someone was scanning for comms traffic or data streams, they wouldn't pick up anything. I was still leading when the sun set behind us. I found a spot that was in a slight depression with some small trees. Ground seemed fresh, no depressions, which meant that nothing had been there for a while. We dug in and set up our decharges in key spots along our perimeter. They blasted shrapnel and smaller explosives in a cone-shaped pattern. If we were attacked, they were great for defense, easy to deploy and arm, 
so they were ideal for a small patrol like us to get some added security while we slept. We ate, drank, took turns on watch, and stripped quickly to inspect for vamp slugs and anything else that latched on during the march. The place was pretty cozy with all the camo nets hung beneath the undergrowth. Sleep came easy, and I clocked in at least four hours that night. Then we were up again. Didn't leave anything behind. No trace, save our scent. The plan that day was to reach the Lawn Swain River and cross it after dark. The thickness of the undergrowth was making keeping a solid pace difficult. The trees were big, around 15, 25 meters tall. The trunks grew in thick clumps and flopped outward with smaller shrubs eating up the real estate beneath. The place was crawling with wildlife. We were getting close to the river right after finishing dinner. Marquendis from 2nd Squad was on point. He gave us the signal to come forward and we were all clustered around, setting up a small perimeter. Initially, the plan was to wait for sunset, but the canopy gave us enough cover that we considered the idea of crossing before dark and then continuing to move ahead, hoping to make up for lost time from having to be dropped off so far out on the delta the day before. Fuck it, let's go for it, I said, grabbing the C7 slug thrower and chambering around like I was the hero on some Holonet show. I nodded at Staven, knowing she'd back my play. It was happening. We moved into the water. The river had a muddy bottom and was moving pretty slow. The Lawn Swain originated in the Toblin Range and made its way through the hills into the jungles below. Once in the shelter of the aptly named Green Death, it snaked east and west in long ribbons, slowing its pace before draining north into the Jane Delta. I was first in. The water was uncomfortably warm. My foot sunk into the mud. I knew I'd be peeling vamp slugs off my leg as soon as we sat down for the night. The river was only 15 meters wide and the boughs of the trees came close to meeting overhead. I was surprised that I was only waist deep when I hit midway, but two steps later and I was struggling to keep my head above the water. I had my hands up, doing my best to keep the weapon dry. I kept moving and was soon into water just below my waist. Only a few more steps and I'd be out. Then a gurgled yelp and a splash from right behind me. I turned. The water wasn't bubbling, it was silent. Now, we hadn't spoken much all day, and even then only in whispers. So that noise, the yelp, startled me. A hand came up, Mondahai. Her face was out of the water, and she lunged forward but was stopped suddenly. I reached for her arm and pulled. She was stabbing at something with her free hand. Her blaster rifle was gone. I one-handed the C7 where she was stabbing and pulled the trigger. The kickback flung my arm up so fast I almost lost grip on it. The blast echoed through the cavern the river had carved in the jungle floor. Anything in earshot fled. The flapping of wings was everywhere. I swore. If someone was within a few clicks, they'd have heard that for sure. Or at the very least seen a sudden flurry of wings going into the sky. 
I pulled Mondahai out of the water. She was grimacing, that floundering look where you didn't quite expect to make it. She was hit deep, too. That thing had latched on near the side of her armor, one of its teeth digging into the plating. If not for that, she would have had a third of her torso ripped off. I can make do until we set up camp. Let's just, let's just get away from the river. We traded kits around to even up the load, and two of us helped Mondahai. It was slow going. She was coming in and out of consciousness when we found a good spot to make camp. I set her down while one of the third squad scouts looked her over. By the time my foxhole was dug, Mondahai was awake, aware, spraying herself down with Bacta. She lowered herself into a hole with Staven and propped herself against the backside with a sigh and a wince. I'd offer you a stick, but, you know, death and all. Staven gestured to the terrain surrounding us. It was a much-needed moment of levity. We chuckled in hushed tones, no one wanting to break the silence. Staven wasn't lying, though. Tobacco sticks could get you killed in a place like this. Not the cherry at the end. That was easy to hide. It was the smell. Someone with a well-trained nose would notice that from a ways off. They'd know someone was here, even if they weren't able to find us. The sun was down, and it was dark beneath the forest canopy. Darker still where we were, tucked in around some rocks at the top of a low hill. We pulled in close to go over our objectives and timelines. The lawn swain was the biggest physical obstacle we'd expected to face. The trouble now was going to be dealing with an injured teammate and getting into position with enough time to properly recon the target, Firepoint Gamma. We set a watch, and the rest of us sat beneath a tarp and fired up the hollow map. Even set at its lowest gamma rating, its glow made us paranoid we'd get spotted. We had another four days of hiking ahead of us. If we really push, we can make it here with a few hours to get a good look around. We won't get any sleep that night, but if we pop some stims, we should be okay. I was looking at the hollow, but... My focus was on Mondahai. I was wondering if there was any internal damage along with the surface wounds. We'd find out the next day, I suppose. The breakfast sludge went down easy in the morning. If you mixed just a touch of your instant coffee in with it, it took on a quasi-smoky flavor. I would always eat after teardown, once we were moving. If I kept going while I ate, my stomach cramps weren't as bad. Anything to be comfortable, I guess. Mondahai was ahead of me. She was carrying my C7 and was making decent progress. Her steps were solid. I kept looking over at her feet. So far, so good. Step by step, we moved dead south. At midday, we would break to the left and head east. The terrain once we moved east was muddier. Not as bad as the delta, but far less than ideal. It was taking its toll on us. Even though the weather was a lot cooler now, the heat from inside our IRDs gave us all a sheen of sweat. That night I was out within seconds of laying down. Three hours went by. Then... Your turn, Kwai. I sat up and grabbed my rifle saw Staven hunched over the side of the hole. She was returning to look down her rifle sight. 
I want you to keep an eye on 130, 1200 meters. I saw something a while ago. The way the underbrush was moving, it went against the wind. Stay with it and wake me up if you see anything fucky. I resented her telling me what to do. Maybe I was just tired. I sighted my scope and peered out into the inky forest. I scanned in low light and then switched to thermal. Thermal was a mess. There'd be little blips everywhere, birds and small warm-blooded crawlies moving all over. When I went back to low light, I thought I saw what she was talking about. There was movement out there, but it was subtle, sporadic. It could have been anything. I would occasionally switch back to thermal, but nothing registered, nothing humanoid. The sun began lighting the sky, and it slowly trickled down into the woods. It was time to move. There was a good chance someone or something was watching us. When things were torn down and we began marching, Arkham was in the rear. He was a Miri Allen from 3rd Squad, and a decent shot. Jumpy, too, which meant he'd be extra vigilant if anything was coming up behind us. Eyes sharp and all that. Hours later, we came to the top of a ridge. It was steep, but the route gave us plenty of cover from above. On approach, we thought it was an impassable wall of vegetation, but there was a path that sloped back and forth. And aside from Mondahai, no one had any difficulty making their way. It wasn't even midday. The progress had been fantastic. Weather was cool, and in the shadows you could catch a wisp of your breath. I hadn't experienced weather like that since harvest back home. We'd only moved a few paces on from the crest when Arkham gave a few clicks. It was code to stop. We all dropped low, moved into whatever shelter we could find and scanned. Arkham signaled for us to group up and fall back. He motioned us, stay low, stay slow. Whatever he'd seen must have been close. He nodded down the slope, pointing with his chin. About 250 meters away, there was someone moving through the underbrush. We all watched the figure passing slowly in and out of the foliage. A humanoid headed right for us. We were cautious, but our position was ideal in terms of keeping us hidden. It was a toppled nurse log festering with new growth. It wouldn't stop enemy fire, but it certainly made it impossible to get an eye on us. Arkham waved his hand. We looked down the ridge again. It wasn't just one guy. There were three, all of them twilling. They passed through an opening in the foliage. Then they dropped down themselves. They studied the ground. These guys were tracking us. They had light kit, regular packs. Each of them had a rifle slung over their shoulder. Old E-10s. Pretty common weapon in these parts. They could have been militia, but they weren't moving tactically like trained soldiers. They studied the ground, passing words between them. Hushed tones, but their lips were moving. Smiles. Amusement. Something about them rubbed me as predatory, though. Their body language, 
They weren't scared of these woods like we were. They weren't scared of being caught. I pointed at Mondahai and Arkham, signaled the three of us would stay behind while the other five moved ahead and waited. Mondahai traded the slug thrower with one of the first squatters for their sniper rifle. The three of us spread out. I was closest to the ridgeline. When the three of them came over the top, they'd follow the trail, seeing our path. The massive gathering of footsteps. They might figure out we'd seen them following us. Didn't matter. The second the third man was up, I'd shoot them. Mondahai would take the second. She was moving into position when she slipped and braced herself on a tree. I looked back. Her face was pale, that dripping exhaustion. She nodded at me and got moving again, looking down, then set up behind some rocks with sprigs coming through every crack. Arkham was further back, but closer to the trail. He'd have a good line on anyone coming. When the first of those Twi'lek came over, he'd have a bead on them. They were his. Everything depended on my opening shot. That would set up the chain. I heard the rustle ahead. They came into view. I could see the first of them. He was a pale green, to the point of being yellow. Then the second was a darker shade of green. I took a breath, slow, controlled. I fired. The shot hit him square in the torso. His whole body jerked as his chest was ripped apart. Then another shot went off. Another one of the Twi'lek went down, the front one. His head fragmented. Then another blaster, louder to my left, multiple shots. Something slammed into my shoulder so hard I spun to the side. I hit the ground and rolled. I felt cooked on the inside and I groaned, gritting my teeth to restrain my yell. I rolled to my right behind a tree and the roots dug into my wound. The shooter was on my left, which meant there must have been four of them. We just hadn't seen the fourth. Were the three on the trail just a distraction? Was that why they were being so loud? I pushed the questions out of my head. I needed to cut off my attacker's angle of fire. More bolts came. The tree's side shredded and chunks of bark flew into the air. I closed my eyes in the blast, but something had gotten in there, a splinter, dirt. They were watering like crazy. Shots came from behind me. I glanced over to the trail and all three Twi'lek were slumped over. More shots impacted the trunk. I was still a target. My left arm was mobile, but the shoulder was in agony. I could feel the joint grinding. With my right hand, I fumbled to get my pistol out and primed it. Another shot came from behind me. The beam sizzled past close enough I heard it cooking the dirt and bark fragments that still hung in the air from my cover being hit so many times. Three blasts sounded like an E-10, an old model, exactly like what the Twi'lek had been carrying. I returned fire with blind, wild shots. There was a smack, like a foot hitting mud, then a pause. I rolled out from the side of my cover and aimed. I had a good idea where they were now. They saw me as I was aiming. It was another Twi'lek. They were turning with their rifle, but I fired first. The pistol was going off when I saw how young they were. Just a teenager. Two of my shots tore into their chest. 
the young Twi'lek collapsed backwards, hitting the ground in a heap, their legs underneath them. I moved in, my pistol still aimed at their torso the entire time. When I got in close, they weren't breathing. They didn't have any armor on, just regular clothing, and well-worn clothing, too. The boots were old army issue, too big for them. Another blaster shot, it was pistol fire. Arkham was on the trail, finishing off the others, just to be sure. I wanted to yell for him to stop. Maybe if one of them was alive, they'd have intel for us. But I was too late, and I was breathing deep and heavy, a mix of panic and confusion. I was losing blood. Then I was hit by pain again, worse than before. The adrenaline was leaving, and I was running through the motions, trying to keep myself together. I started rifling through the teenager's bag, rolling them over with one hand and doing my best to see if they had anything of use. I dumped it out onto the ground. Nothing. No identification, maps, or intel about the area. I took a better look at their weapon. It was a beat-to-shit E-10 from the Clone Wars. Thing had modifications to the emitter to enhance its accuracy, a focusing device, but it looked fried. It was impressive that that thing hadn't blown up in their hands while pulling the trigger. I was giving it the once-over when Staven came up from behind. Shit, Kwai, how you feeling? I told her I was fine, and she told me to strip down ASAP. My shoulder had taken a good shot, and I was bleeding heavy. Seeing the wound really got to me. I was hit. I stared at it. The way it would move when I would breathe in and out. She was digging through her pack for Bacta when I collapsed. Passed out. Came to lying face down beneath some caminats. Staven was beside me. I must have jerked when I woke up because she put her hand on my back. Calm down. You're safe. Stay quiet. Apparently, after passing out, I came to in a borderline state of consciousness. I was rambling a lot, and they half-carried me for a few more hours before deciding to lay low and dig in for the night. I didn't remember any of it. Still don't, years later. My shoulder felt a lot better, though. I'd been doused in Bacta for a few hours now, and they'd shot me full of pain meds. It was hard to gauge how rough I actually was. Just hoped we had enough pills to get me through this. Those Twi'lek must have been looking for us. Local hunters, trackers. Took some creds to be on the lookout for whoever runs that landing pad we're supposed to hit. Like a side hustle. Cause one of them even had a stasis tank filled with kidneys from poda apes. Lots of them. Must have taken out a good sized colony. I said we should take it with us, sell it, but. We're a bit weighed down right now. She held her eyes on my shoulder and upper back, then looked over at Mondahai before shifting in the hole and leaning back. I asked how bad I was, told her to be honest. Not good. Your left shoulder blade is in a bad way and carrying anything is going to be hard. But you shoot right, so when everything hits, you'll be all right. You remember the layout of that place? She pulled a tarp over and lit up a hollow. The Rylian foothills. This was where the main force would advance from, flying north through ravines and cover, then hitting the target. 
With two squadmates injured, will they reach the enemy fire point in time? And what other horrors await them in the jungle valleys of Seston 4? That's next time on Episode 10, The Ravine. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.